Well, we need some good news indeed, and here's what I want to do. I want to start this morning a little bit differently than maybe we normally do, and it's going to require some crowd participation, so I hope you're into that kind of thing, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to finish this sentence for me. Happiness is blank, and I don't want you to think hard about it, just the first thing that comes into your mind, and I want, to turn, I want you to turn to someone next to you, and I want you to tell them how you would finish that sentence. Do it right now. Go. Happiness is blank. What makes you happy? What brings you joy? Keep it appropriate. This is church, people. I heard some of that awkward laughter out there, and uh, some of you, you heard your neighbor's answer, and you're thinking, man, I'm glad they're in church today with an answer like that. They need to be, right? And so we're glad you're here, and we're thankful for your honesty. But uh, I bet there are as many answers to that question right there as there are people in this room, because all of us have a unique perspective when it comes to what makes us happy or what brings us joy. And last week, Paul did a great job of kicking off our Christmas series. If you missed that message, I want to encourage you to go and listen to it on our podcast. But we're focusing on Luke chapter 2, where an angel is talking to some shepherds, and here's what happens. It says, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And last week was all about that good news and why it's still good news for you and I today. But this morning, I want to explore why the angel would say that this good news would cause great joy. Because while we might all have a unique perspective on what we think makes us happy or what brings us joy, I want you to see what it was that caused great joy on that very first Christmas. And I hope to show you that it's still the source of lasting joy today. And so to do that, I'd like for us to read through the Christmas story together. Now, I realize most of you have probably heard the Christmas story before. If you were here last Sunday, Linus from Charlie Brown read it for us. Uh, My family has a tradition that we read the Luke 2 account on Christmas morning before we open presents. Uh, My dad always did that when I was growing up, and we've carried that on in our family. Maybe you do something similar to that, but I want us to read the story together today uh, there in Luke 2. And if you want to follow along in your own Bible, please feel free to do so. But here's how it begins. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now, let's pause right there. Because last week we learned all about Caesar Augustus. And he was the head of the Roman Empire. And his decrees were law. Okay, this was not optional. And he decided it was time for a census to be taken. He wanted a head count of the entire Roman world. That is to say, all of the territory and all of the people that Rome had conquered to date. And again, this decree, it wasn't optional. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you lived or what your condition was. You had to travel to your hometown to register. Okay, so we pick that up in verse 4. It says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. 
Now, this opens by saying Joseph went up. And we've talked before about the fact that when we read that in the Gospels, it doesn't mean north. It's literally a reference to elevation. And we know that as you would travel from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south, you literally are traveling uphill. And so on the map there, again, you can see where these places would be. But what's harder to see is that this is nearly a 100-mile journey. Okay, and it could take anywhere from five to ten days to make that trek, depending on a lot of different factors. But I think we need to remember that Mary was pregnant. And I don't know if you've ever traveled with a pregnant lady before, uh, but the bathroom breaks are significant, okay? And so we can assume that this maybe took a little bit longer than normal. Did you hear my wife just laugh? Did you hear her? She did. She knows it's true. So we can imagine uh, that on this trip, you know, the five to ten day journey by foot from Nazareth to Bethlehem, uh, it it was difficult. She's pregnant. They're making this trek, but they make it to Bethlehem. And verse 6 tells us that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, that translation that I just read of guest room, it sounded weird to some of you, didn't it? Because we're used to hearing that there was no room for them in the what? In the inn, correct. And because of that, every Christmas play has the role of the innkeeper who sadly turns away Mary and Joseph. He hangs the no vacancy sign. The hotel is full. You're going to have to sleep in the barn, right? And if you have a nativity scene that you set up at Christmas time, it probably includes Mary and Joseph and the baby in a stable-like setting, maybe something like this. We have the same thing at our house. But here's what's interesting. The word in this passage that is often translated as in, in our English Bibles, is this word, katalama, katalama, and it literally means guest room or upper room. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 22 to refer to the guest room where he will eat the last supper with his disciples. We also call it the upper room, and that's a fitting name for it because it certainly was on the second level of a first century Jewish home. But it's important to note that the Greek language also has another word that is translated as in, and it's this word, pandakion, pandakion. And this is the word used in Luke 10 when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. And the the Samaritan, he takes the injured man to the inn, to the Pandakion, and he leaves him in the care of the Pandakius, the innkeeper. Now think about the fact that Luke is quite familiar with both of these words. He's used them both in different ways in different passages. But in the story of Christ's birth, he uses Catalima, guest room. And here's why scholars believe that he did that. Joseph and Mary were traveling a long distance from home. We've already seen that. And they were most likely to stay not at an inn, but with some of Joseph's relatives there in Bethlehem. And it's likely that there are a number of guests staying in this relative's home because the census applied to everyone in the Roman world. And so as people traveled to their hometown, they would have been looking for a free place to stay. People didn't have money for an extended stay at an inn. Now, some of you will be familiar with answers in Genesis. They're the folks who put on the Creation Museum and the Ark Exhibit in northern Kentucky. And they point out that archaeologists have excavated a number of first century Jewish homes. 
And what they've found is that, uh, indeed, the upper level of these homes served as the guest chamber, but that the lower level would serve as the living room and the dining room for the Jewish family that lived there. But on top of that, they've also found evidence that animals would often be brought into the lower level of that home. and They would do that to protect them, possibly from the cold or from theft. So here's what Answers in Genesis suggests is the most likely scenario for Christ's birth. Jesus was born not in a barn, but on the lower level of a very crowded relative's home in which some of the animals had been brought in for the night. And his mother Mary laid him in the manger or the feed trough that was there. I just ruined Christmas for you, didn't I? I am so sorry. But listen, don't throw out your nativity scene. We don't know any of this for sure. In fact, Luke 2 gives us the most detailed account of Christ's birth. And in all honesty, there's not a lot of detail there. But here's the thing to notice. The most important, the most significant aspect of this event itself is there. Mary and Joseph now have a baby boy. And more importantly, God is now with us in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come. Now let's look at verse 8 and what it says there. It says there were shepherds who were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And just curious, how many of you ever played a shepherd in the Christmas play? Come on, we've got some shepherds. I knew you were out there. I was one too. And maybe like me, you borrowed your dad's bathrobe, uh, put a towel around your head, grabbed a stick out of the yard, and boom, instant shepherd, right? Shepherding's easy. But what do we know about these guys in reality? Well, we know that shepherds were essential to the culture because they provided the animals that, again, were essential for the sacrifices to be made according to Jewish law. But they were also sort of social outcasts. And this was true for a couple of reasons. First of all, the shepherds did their work out in the fields, away from people. And so you think about uh, maybe their social skills weren't quite up to par. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we would, we would think about them as the, the, the rednecks of the day, okay? Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, it just seemed to make sense to me. That's how I think about them. But beyond just the, the social aspect of where they did their work, we also know that the nature of their work made them unclean, again, according to Jewish ceremonial law. And so the shepherds were kind of looked down on in their day. No one aspired to be a shepherd. You think about David's story in the Old Testament. David was a shepherd when he was a boy. And when Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons as king, Jesse didn't even bother to call David in. He's a shepherd. There's no way a shepherd could be king, right? Well, he was wrong, but that's the way that shepherds were viewed. And in the same way that no one expected the Messiah to sleep in a manger, no one would have expected the good news of his birth to be announced to a bunch of shepherds in a field. Now look at, at what happens in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now remember, it's the middle of the night. Okay, it's quiet, it's dark outside, the sheep have been tucked in for the night, and now the text says, out of nowhere an angel appears, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Have any of you ever experienced uh, being asleep at night, the lights are out, but all of a sudden somebody flips them on, just full brightness in the middle of the night? Anybody ever felt that? It is startling when that happens. 
And think about that times about a million, and I think that's what's happening to these guys. They just go from absolute darkness to pure, bright light all around them. And in the midst of it is this heavenly creature, this angel, and he declares these famous words to them in verse 10. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Messiah, the Lord. Now, I want to give you some backstory so that you and I can understand fully the significance of why this was good news of great joy, okay? For you and I today, we can pick up our Bible, and we can read the Old Testament all the way to the very end, And then we can turn this one page and we can start reading the New Testament, right? We think nothing of it. We jump back and forth from old to new all the time. But what you need to understand is that that one thin page right there, that represents 400 years. 400 years in Israel's history. And it was 400 years when God was silent. It's referred to as the intertestamental period. And it ends with the last prophecies of the prophet Malachi. And it ends with the first words of John the Baptist in the New Testament. And so there again, it's been 400 years that God is silent. He has said nothing. And things have changed dramatically for Israel in that 400 years. It's a period that lasted from about 400 B.C. to 25 A.D. And Israel went from being conquered and controlled by the Persians to being conquered again by the Greeks. And then finally, in in 63 B.C., they were conquered uh, by Rome. They came under Roman rule. So for over 400 years, Israel had existed as a conquered people group. They had endured deportation. They had endured the defiling and and the destruction of their temple and ultimately the destruction of their holy city. And the destruction of of all of these things, even as the events of Luke 2 were unfolding, the Jews were still experiencing this under the heavy thumb of Rome. And through all of this, they must have been wondering, like, where is God? Right? It's been 400 years. Where is the promised Messiah? When will Israel know peace again? And it makes me wonder if maybe some of you have ever waited for something for so long that you started to wonder if it would ever happen at all. I mean, have you been there before? Have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe it has to do with a spouse or a child, and you have prayed for them in a very specific way, but as the years go by, maybe you've started to wonder, man, will this ever happen Or maybe you've waited for the right guy or the right girl, but things just never seem to to work out and you are left waiting. Or maybe it's a work situation and you are hoping things will change. You know, maybe the pay will improve or management will see things differently, but, but it just never seems to happen. And as time passes, it becomes harder and harder to believe that things can be different. And I wonder if that was true for Israel as well. Because 400 years is a long time to keep hoping and waiting and trusting, isn't it? And the years and the decades and the centuries went by, but still no word from God. But I want you to imagine with me today that today is the day that things begin to change. Whatever that situation might be for you, whatever it is that you've been waiting for, what if today was the day that everything began to come together the way that you had always hoped it would? Maybe your kids call to say and they say, Mom, Dad, you were right all along. 
you know, and uh, those, those words ring in your ears. It's what you've prayed for. They're, they're turning their ways around. Or maybe Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright bumps into you at the checkout line at Aldi, and uh, maybe a, a relationship begins over a cup of Beaumont coffee, right? And uh, if you don't know Beaumont coffee, that's Aldi's brand. Uh, it's garbage, but uh, who cares, right? New relationship is born. So, or maybe your boss calls you up on a Sunday. And uh, he says, you know what, I I just realized you have a really unique perspective. And uh, I want to make you a VP, you get a company vehicle and a raise, all of it. Imagine how you'd feel in a moment like that. I I bet it might be something like this. (laughs) Just like absolute joy, and you can't contain it, right? And I imagine that that this is what it was like for Mary and Joseph and these shepherds. Not, Not necessarily that. But, but the joy part, that uh, it was just this unspeakable joy as God broke his 400 years of silence and his plan for salvation began to unfold. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4 that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And notice that Paul says that it's when the time had fully come. And it points to the fact that God was right on time. I mean, 400 years, right? That's a long time, no doubt. But it was not a bit too soon, and it wasn't at all too late. It was the time God had set. And when that time had fully come, God sent his son. And so in verse 12, the angel says, This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, and listen to this, this is important, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The Messiah had come and his peace would make all the difference in a world that was searching for joy. This was the good news that caused great joy that first Christmas. Andy Stanley says it uh, very succinctly, I think, and I want to share this with you. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. He says, true joy is always about a who, not a what. True joy is always about a who, not a what. And isn't it true that we often try to make joy about a what? If I just had this or drove that or lived there, then I could be happy. And when we think that way, we make joy about a what. What do I need next that's going to make me happy? But what we see in Luke chapter 2 is that the cause of great joy was not a what at all, but it was a who. And that who was a man named Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But he made himself nothing, and he took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And in the sinless life and sacrificial death of Jesus, we find the cause of great joy that is for all people, It's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Listen, our sins can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to God. 
That's the good news of great joy. And where the shepherds were excited about a Savior being born, we have the knowledge that he wasn't just born. As great as that was, as miraculous as it was, and he didn't just die as incredible and as essential as that is, but that he rose from the dead and he promised that one day he is coming again. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he tells them that all of the people of earth will see the Messiah coming again and he will come on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And for those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that day is going to mean unimaginable joy and we long for it. Because John tells us in Revelation 21 that on that day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And listen, this is the best part. And we will be with him forever. We will be with him forever. And if knowing that doesn't fill us with joy, nothing will. Because nothing else can Nothing else. Our hope and our joy and our peace are rooted not in a what, but in the person and the promise of Jesus. And we should approach this Christmas season not only looking back to the birth of Christ, but also looking forward to his soon return. And so my question for you this morning is this. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day when Christ will come again? Are you watching and eagerly awaiting the Savior Jesus? We don't know when he will come. Only the Father knows that. But we do know that God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish. But please don't view his patience as negligence. Please don't think that 2,000 years is too long or that he has somehow reneged on his promise. He has not. And when the set time fully comes, we will see him again. So don't lose heart, and don't lose hope, and don't lose your joy, because the best is yet to come. You know, we opened our service today singing the song, Joy to the World, and, and it's obviously one of the most loved Christmas carols of all time, but I learned something interesting about the song this week. It was written by a man named Isaac Watts in the early 1700s, and he wrote it as a paraphrase of Psalm 98. And Watts, his intention was actually that it would celebrate not the birth of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. As he wrote the words, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. It's a picture and a reminder of Christ's second coming and the fact that he is coming again. And so we're going to close today the same way that we started, by singing those famous words. But where we sang it at the start of our service, focusing on his birth, we sing it now in closing, focusing on the fact that he is coming again. And here's my challenge to you, Genesis Church. This Christmas season and beyond, whenever you find yourself running low on joy, when the chaos ramps up and life starts to wear you down, let's stop and remember that joy is found not in a what, but in the one who came once in humility, but will soon return in power. And until that day, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for this season, this season of joy, this season when we reflect that you sent your son, born of a virgin, that he was God in the flesh, that he came to live a sinless, perfect life, 
to die the sacrificial death, to pay a debt, Father, that he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay, but that the grave could not hold him. He rose again, defeating death, and he promised that one day he is coming again for those who have confessed with their mouths and believed in their hearts that he is Lord. Father, we thank you for the joy that we find in that promise. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into light. We thank you that you have called us into the ministry of reconciliation, that now we are called to go out and share the hope and the joy that we have with everyone we come in contact with. And Father, maybe some of us just needed a reminder today because it's so easy to get consumed by things, to get consumed by, by the, the family get-togethers, Father, the, the, just all of the add-ons to the Christmas season. But Father, we realign our sight this morning on Jesus Christ, that he came in humility and he will come again in power. And when he does, Father, what imaginable, unimaginable joy we will experience in that day. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the joy we find in him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I wanna invite you to stand as we sing this last song together. Let's try this again. Let's sing this together. Joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Sing my soul, my 
opportunities this week to be your voice to be your hands and feet to a world that needs it so desperately we give you all the glory and the honor in Jesus name Amen